Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started in our class today, let's uh, make sure that we are in fellowship, which simply means that we continue to enjoy that rapport, that close relationship that we have with the Lord. Uh, Being in right relationship with the Lord isn't just a static position of in fellowship, but it emphasizes enjoying that relationship with God, abiding in Christ, and it's part of that family relationship uh, that we have with the Lord. And it's important because it is in when we are uh, walking by the Spirit, we're enjoying that fellowship. Part of that is studying the Word, and the Holy Spirit makes that discernible to us so that we can understand it and apply it in our lives. So we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we had this time to come together to study your word and to be reminded of so many of your faithful promises to us and the fact that that underlying the promises is your character and underlying that is the is your your eternal unchangeable reality and father we know that this is what gives stability and certainty to the promises we pray that we can understand them accurately that we may apply them appropriately and we pray this in Christ's name amen Okay, we're continuing a study on the faith rest drill, which comes out of our study in 1 Thessalonians, because as we read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, the Thessalonians' faith had gone out to all the world, to Macedonia and to Achaia, and this isn't just the fact that they simply believed, but it is the fact that their faith made a reality, uh, was a change in the reality of their lives. It made a difference on their day-to-day activities. And so how they lived reflected their deep and profound dependence and trust in God. So as we look at the faith rest drill, tonight we're going to talk about the uh, the promise of First, uh, First Peter 5, 7, casting your care upon him, how that relates to other biblical promises. But just as a reminder, when we are uh, utilizing the faith rest drill, we first of all claim a promise, which means that somehow there's a promise or a statement of Scripture that we're wrapping our mental fingers around and we're mixing that with faith and we're basically calling upon God to fulfill the promise that's embedded in that verse or in that in that particular statement. If we want to pursue this a little further so that we can become more adept at the faith rest drill, 
then we need to do some Bible studies. I've said before that should encourage some of you to go back and listen to the series on Bible study methods so that we can probe these promises that we find in the Scripture. Every Christian should be regularly reading the Word. Uh, If you just read five chapters a day, you'll read the Word of God in a year, and it usually doesn't take more than about 15 or 20 minutes to read five chapters. Now, I know there's some chapters that are very, very long, but there's also some chapters that are very, very short. So it's just important to read that and to underline. When you see promises, underline those promises. Write notes in the margin or in the top margin. Write categories for promises, and you can categorize those. In my Bible, I write uh, categories in the top margin so that as I uh, go back and I'm looking for something, I can easily find it by just scanning the top margin. But we also need to read the context. We see a promise. We hear a promise. Maybe it's something I've recited, something you hear from somebody else, and you take the time to go back, find it in the Bible, read the whole chapter, read the surrounding context, and work your way through it. So that's step two is thinking through the doctrinal rationales that are embedded in the promise. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in this lesson. And then as we do that, we realize that there are certain conclusions that are reached that give stability to the uh, thinking of the uh, of uh, of the individual believer. Now, if you look at a lot of psalms, a lot of psalms are what are called by scholars lament psalms. A lament is when you're you're crying out because you're in some kind of pain or difficulty or adversity. And there's a number of those. And if you think through these various lament psalms that we find in the Scripture, they usually start off with some sort of cry to God. Now, today we're going to look at Psalm 55. Uh, 22 as we go through this, but this is a, a lament psalm and it starts off with this cry to God at the very beginning of verse one. Give ear to my prayer, O God. The psalmist is saying, Lord, please listen. He's crying to God. Listen to me and don't hide yourself from my supplication. Don't ignore me. Uh, to put it into a, a more of a paraphrase. That's what he's calling upon the Lord to do. And then as we think our way through a psalm, you'll see that there is a transition that takes place. There's the cry to God, uh, which occurs in in this this psalm in the first two verses, and then there's a reason that starts to be given in verse 3, because of the voice of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked, for they bring down trouble upon me, and in wrath they hate me. So then the psalmist begins to talk about his problems, and he's explaining why he's calling upon God. And in the next section, there's usually a focus upon the the lament, the problem, the adversity that he is facing. And at this point, the psalmist is usually talking about or or focusing on what his circumstances are. And that's the case with many of us. We get into difficult circumstances, something terrible has happened, something very, very traumatic has happened, and we focus on that. We have a tendency to become self-absorbed. And if we follow that tendency, then we just kick into gear the arrogant skills, which I'll talk about a little later on, and we start focusing on self, 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 and pretty soon we're we're throwing a pity party and we're just all focused on our own problems and failures and everything else, and we slide into a whole cycle of depression, of sadness, depression, and anger and resentment, and we can just emotionally spiral out of control into a whole 
complex of emotional sins at the very root of which is fear. In the previous lesson, I talked about how fear is the core emotional sin of the sin nature because when we go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 10, and we read the reaction of Adam and Eve when God first came into the garden and began to uh, look for them, cried out, uh, Adam, you know, where are you? And they've hidden themselves because after they ate of the fruit, they realized they were vulnerable. They realized they were naked, uh, and they uh, clothed themselves. And then when they heard the sound of, the God, of God's voice in the garden, they said, we heard the sound of your voice in the garden, and we hid ourselves because we were afraid. So at the very core of our psychology, if we're building a biblical psychology, is fear. We are born afraid, and we seek many different ways to cover up that uh, that fear. So just a couple of more points then as we talk about fear is, first of all, the more things we surrender to fear, the more things we fear. We can't, the basic principle here is a, is a, is an old adage, we can't take counsel of our fears. We can't let our fears, our anxieties dictate our responses and our course of action. We either fear or we love God. Those are the opposites that we've seen in the scripture from 1 John uh, chapter 4, verse 10. The more things we surrender to fear, then the more things we fear. As we begin to give in to fear, give in to this emotional complex of sin that grows out of fear that involves uh, anxiety and depression and anger and resentment and bitterness, all of these flow out of fear. As we give in to that, it, it, it increases, it multiplies itself, it feeds on itself, and then this eventually leads till we're just living in panic palace. We're fearful all the time, and the least little thing sets us off, and we become irritable, and we become angry, and we, people don't want to be around us, and we don't want to be around people. So that's the first point. The more things we surrender to fear, the more things you fear. It's a matter of volition. It's your choice. Second, the extent to which you surrender to fear, the greater your capacity for fear. There are many people who are fearful people. They're very timid. As they, When they were young, when they were children, they may have had a lot of boldness. They may have loved adventure. They got out. They did things. They explored. But as they get older, as a result of being hurt, as a result of being disappointed, as a result of failure in life, they become fearful. They become anxious about things. And so they... They're afraid to do things. Uh, they no longer have that security. And it really wasn't a, a, a solid security as a child. But as a believer, we have security that's in the Lord. So we should not be fearful of anything because we know that our life, our times, our health, everything is in the Lord's hand. So uh, when we are giving into fear, more, the more we fear, the more things we'll fear, and the more we surrender to fear, the greater our capacity for fear becomes until we can become just fearful people. Third point is the greater our capacity fear, uh, for fear, the more you increase the power of fear in your life. And what this means is that, that fear then begins to control us. It dictates our actions. And rather than making uh, bold moves, rather than making moves out of confidence, rather than living our life on the basis of the Word of God, that I can do all things uh, through Christ who strengthens me. Instead, we are making our decisions based upon fear. That becomes our motivation and the control uh, feature. Fourth, the more we increase the power of fear in our life, the greater our fear 
the greater our failure to live the spiritual life and grow to spiritual maturity. At some point, our spiritual growth begins to regress. We begin to forget the doctrine that's in our soul. We begin to uh, go backwards spiritually, and we are spiraling out of control, and this ends up impacting our level of tranquility, peace, and happiness in our life because this just, just evaporates and we're controlled by fear and anxiety rather than happiness and stability. So let's look at some promises related to this. The one I mentioned as we began is uh, where we ended last time in Psalm 55:22. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he shall sustain you. He shall never permit the righteous to be moved. This comes at the end of Psalm 55, which, as I pointed out uh, before in a little bit in, in the introduction, begins with this lament. Here we have uh, the psalmist, who is David in this case. We're told the, the, about his background in the uh, superscript that you have there just before verse 1. Actually, this is in the first verse in the Hebrew text. It's not just something the the editors of the English Bible put in there. This is part of verse 1 in the uh, he, uh, Biblia Hebraica. To the chief musician with stringed instruments, so this was the instructions given as to how it was to be sung, and it's called a contemplation of David, a contemplation of David, and in this case this is, this is a called a maskil, which was a type of of psalm. It's related to a type of, of music and some sort of co- code for that, which we're not sure of. So it's a contemplation of David. He's reflecting upon his circumstances. And after he has gone through this adversity, he goes back and he memorializes it by thinking it through and writing it in a poetic framework. So this isn't, this reflects how how David worked his way through the problem, the adversity that he faced. He writes it later on under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit and then sets that to music. This, this is a tremendous uh, exercise for people. Some of you are creative like this, and you can do that with your own life. You can write verse, and you can write this down, not necessarily for uh, public use. Sometimes that's possible. Some people do this. Of course, um, we know that there are various hymns that we sing that have been written by uh, hymnists that reflect their experience. We sing when peace like a river, uh, uh, when peace like a river, whatever, what is that? Peace like a river, um, come over my soul, whatever. We know the song. Uh, that came out of H.G. Spafford's experience as he faced the loss of his daughters. And so um, they, he wrote that hymn as a result of that. Now, what you write or what I write may not be that uh, all that special, but it helps us to think through that process. And that's what David has done uh, in, in Psalm 55. So he starts off with his uh, cry to God in verses 1 and 2, and then in verses 3 through 8, he is talking about his own experience and what is going on in his soul. And it's like he's just moved into Panic Palace and he's having an absolute anxiety attack uh, because of the opposition that he is facing from his enemies and from the wicked who would seek to destroy him. 
And he describes the psychology of this in verse 4. My heart is severely pained within me. And if you've ever been through times of, of, of fright, times of fear, where you have lost things, where you've just felt extremely uncertain, then you know that this this describes that kind of experience. It becomes not just a mental attitude of fear, but it is something that you feel physically. And so he's talking about the pain that he is feeling within his within his soul and the terrors of death have uh, fallen upon me. He's not just talking about, about fear here, something there where he's mildly afraid or concerned, but it's a terror. It's something that leads... To, to much greater anxiety than simply simply fear. He talks, verse 5, fearfulness and trembling have come upon me. Trembling is a very physical reaction so that his adrenaline is up a little bit and, and it's causing this, this physical reaction where he is shaking as he thinks about uh, what could possibly occur because of the opposition of his enemies. And horror has overwhelmed me. So I said, and now it describes how he just wishes to completely escape from the situation, that if I could just escape all of this and fly away and go somewhere else. And this this reflects the thinking a lot of people have, just abandon everything and leave to run away, to go find some place where they can just hide and their problems won't find them and the difficulties won't, won't find them. Uh, they would do just about anything to avoid feeling what they are feeling. And then in verse 9, we see a tone shift as he's thinking through this. He said, he calls upon the Lord and he calls upon the Lord for specific action. And this is sometimes called an um, imprecation where he's calling upon God to destroy, to bring curses or judgment upon his enemies. Now remember, this is, a lot of people have problems with these kinds of Psalms, but this is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and he is being attacked as the anointed one of God. And so he is calling upon God uh, to, to destroy his enemies because they are also God's enemies and they are bringing violence and strife in the city. The second half of verse nine. For I've seen violence and strife in the city. Well, what city is that? That's Jerusalem, the city of God. And so he's, he's focusing on the problem that this isn't just a personal problem, but he is able to take this problem and recast it within a divine viewpoint framework that it is also an assault upon God and upon God's plan for his life. We can think back to an early example in David's life where he did this, showing his divine viewpoint when he went to battle with Goliath, or actually in the in the early stages of that event, as he's come to bring lunch to his brothers who are in Saul's army. And while he's standing there, this Philistine came out from the uh, other side of the Valley of Elah, uh, and came out challenging the Israelites for to send someone out, and they would do one-on-one um, -on -one combat in order to determine the outcome of the battle. And when when David heard this, and this had been going on for a month, uh, David heard this, and he's appalled, and his reaction shows his divine viewpoint framework. He says, 
why why is this uncircumcised Philistine doing this? And the key word there is uncircumcised because he's emphasizing the fact that this is this guy has no no claim on the land because the land was promised to us in the Abrahamic covenant. The sign of the Abrahamic covenant is circumcision. This guy's uncircumcised. He's got no relationship to the Abrahamic covenant, and, and therefore he has no right to the land. So why are we trembling? Because God is the one who's going to give us the land, and he's the one who gives us the victory. So he's able to look at his problems and to identify and interpret them within the framework of, of biblical truth and the plan of God. And so that's what we need to learn to do. So that's what he's doing in Psalm 55. He sees this as, as an assault, not just on him, but upon God's plan for, for him, for the, his life, and for Israel. I've seen violence and strife in the city day and night. They go around it on its walls. Iniquity and trouble are also in the midst of it. Destruction is in its midst. Oppression and deceit do not depart from its streets. So what he's setting up here is a rationale in his prayer to God for why God should intercede and act on his behalf. He is explaining to God within this lament, which is now a prayer, why God should intervene, that this is not only a personal problem, but this is a problem related to your city, your people, and it is an act of iniquity and rebellion, and so this needs to be stopped, and God, you're the one who needs to intervene uh, uh, in this situation. In verse 12 we read, for it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it, nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide from him. But it was you, a man, my equal, my companion, my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and walked to the house of God in the throng. So he's been betrayed by someone who is very, uh, very close to him. And then he calls upon God to intervene in verse 15. Let death seize them. Let them go down alive into Hades. That's held there. Hell is not is an old English word that comes from the Danish and a couple other uh, concepts, uh, a couple other languages from northern Europe. In northern Europe, uh, it's in the Hebrew, it's Sheol. Uh, it's the place of the dead. Let them go down alive into Sheol. Of course, we know that from Luke that there are different compartments in Sheol, and this would be into torments. Uh, which is where the rich man in the to- story of the rich man in Lazarus, where the rich man went because he was an unbeliever. He says, why should they be thrown down alive into uh, Sheol? For wickedness is in their dwellings and among them. As for me, he says, I will call upon God. So now there's another shift in tone here. He's focused on the enemies, what he's called upon. He's calling upon God now. I will call upon God and the Lord shall save me. Here's another example of the a Hebrew verb, yasha, meaning to save, which isn't talking about eternal salvation from the lake of fire. It's talking about temporal deliverance from some calamity, which is how the word is used almost every time in the Old Testament. It's, I, I, there it's used a lot of times. I haven't worked through every single usage. There's one or two that are possibly related to eternal salvation. Of course, we know that the noun form from that verb, Yeshua, is where we get the name for Jesus. And the angel Gabriel told, told Joseph that you will call his name Yeshua because he will save his people from their sins. So salvation clearly has that connotation. 
and it's used that way many times uh, in the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, we always have to be careful to look at the context and not just say, well, every time it says saved, it means uh, uh, escaping eternal punishment in the lake of fire. Many times, it, most of the time, it does not mean that. And then David says, evening and morning and at noon I will pray and cry aloud. That's three times a day. Paul says pray without ceasing continually throughout the day. But it indicates that he's got specific times that he set aside in his daily discipline and routine to pray. And that that is something we should incorporate in our busy lives. We should have specific times uh, in the morning, at night perhaps. It doesn't have to be three times. It doesn't have to be uh, any specific time other than what works well in our schedule, and then we have to keep that. Evening, morning, at noon, I will pray and cry aloud, and he shall hear my voice. We see his confidence in God. Uh, asserting itself now. That's part of his trust, and he relates to what God has done in the past, that he has redeemed my soul in peace from the battle that was against me, for there were many against me. And here we see the word redeemed use, which has that connotation of being purchased, a penalty being paid. But here it's not talking about redemption from the sin penalty as it's talking about redemption from a physical calamity. So it's used as a synonym for uh, Yasha back in verse 16. God will hear. That's his confident statement of confidence. God will hear and afflict them. Even he, that is God who abides from old, that takes us to understanding his essence, selah. That's just a pause a, a, in, in the meter repetition of the, of the psalm. Because they do not change, therefore they do not fear God. So he's focusing back on his enemies now. That because they do not change, they do not fear God, he has put forth his hands against those who were at peace with him. He has broken his covenant. Uh, the words of his mouth were smoother than butter. He's talking about um, this enemy of his who's put forth his hands against those who were at peace with him, those were who, who were his friends. That's what he talked about back in verse 13. You were a man, my equal, my companion, my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together. And so now in verse 20, he's put forth his hands against me. That's this, this individual against those who were at peace with him. And he's broken his covenant. That is, he's broken that covenant of friendship that was there. The words of his mouth were smoother than butter. He was deceitful. He, he betrayed his friends, but war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Then he comes to his conclusion. So what we've done here is we've looked at this, the whole context here, and now David brings us back to the key underlying principle and states it so well for us, and it is a command that just as he has cast his burden upon the Lord and the Lord has delivered him, so we too are to cast our burden upon the Lord and he will sustain us. And so uh, he then concludes, he shall never permit the righteous to be moved. Now we need to understand that because on the surface it might look like, well, what God promises is that that we're never going to really have serious problems. And, of course, if you read these lament psalms, you realize that Christians have serious problems. 
but that God is not going to lose them. It's, if you think forward to, to John chapter 10 and Jesus saying that we are in the Father's hand and he will never let go. It's that idea that, that we will never be ultimately shaken or destroyed because God is the one who uh, keeps us. So it starts off with the command to cast our burden upon the Lord. We are to throw it, fling it, cast it. Shalak is the word there that we are to cast this. We're to take a burden, like, like picture yourself with a heavy load, and you're going to just heave it off of your back and onto somebody else's back. Somebody else is going to carry the load, carry the burden, and the one on whom we cast this is the Lord. And the result is that he shall, he will sustain you. And the, uh, the word there for sustain is the Hebrew word cool, which means to contain something, to hold on to something, to bear something, to provide something. It's probably the best idea here. He shall provide for you. He shall take care of you. He shall get to give you that which you need in order to survive the problem. And face the problem. So the, the command is to cast your burden upon the Lord, and the result that is promised is that the Lord will provide for you. He will take care of you. He can handle the circumstance. They may not handle it the way you think it ought to be handled. Uh, that doesn't mean that you may not go through difficulty. It depends on what the cause is. Sometimes we make bad decisions, or we're associated with people who make bad decisions, or there are uh, circumstances in the world that cause trauma in our life. And just because we cast the burden upon the Lord doesn't mean that, that the problem goes away. In fact, the problem won't go away. But he gives us the resources to be able to handle that problem and with, with joy and peace and tranquility where we're not consumed by fear and worry. The, so then the next line gives us an, an, an uh, a conclusion that he shall never permit the righteous to be moved. And the word there for moved is the word moot, which has the idea of being shaken, being made unstable, uh, tottering. So the promise here is that if we want stability in our life, then we have to give our problems over to the Lord and leave them there and cast them upon him. Now, this is an interesting word here, uh, related to uh, moot, it has this idea of of uh, giving something over. It's a figure of speech that can relate to great insecurity, and uh, and it emphasizes also that we need to uh, put this independence upon the Lord. The, from the many passages in Scripture, we learn that righteous men are unmovable and secure because the Lord is our rock. He is our salvation. He is the one who gives us stability. It's not our our stability. We see this word used in an interesting interplay in uh, Isaiah 54, verse 10. There's a play on words here between the word uh, depart, which is the Hebrew word mush, and the word removed in the second line, mot, which is the word that we have here. And he goes back and forth, indicating that this is the idea uh, that is behind this word for uh, that we will not be moved. For the mountains shall depart, that's the synonym, mush, 
and the hills shall be removed. That's our word moat. So it has to do with movement and change. So when we think about the righteous not being moved, it's that we're not being changed, we're not being overwhelmed. My, my kindness shall not depart from you, nor shall my covenant of peace be removed. Depart is that word mush again, and then the covenant of peace not being removed is the word moat. So you see this interchange. It's they 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 look very similar in Hebrew, and they sound somewhat similar. They both start with the letter M, and so there's this kind of a literary interplay between the two different words. And so God is making this promise. So Isaiah 54.10 gives us a little bit of an insight into the meaning of the word that is used in Psalm 55.22. Now, this principle that is articulated so well in this promise is restated in the New Testament in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, a promise I hope everybody knows casting all your care upon him because he cares for you. This is a very short, simple promise. Anybody can memorize this. You can memorize it before you leave here, casting all your care upon him because he cares for you. And so what do we do when we claim this promise? Well, we're going to mix our faith with the promise of God, and we are going to do what it says to do. We're going to cast our care upon the Lord. Now, this is in the fifth chapter of First Peter, so we need to take some time to look at the context. That's how we think through the doctrinal rationale and understand what this is talking about. Now, this is in the context of a paragraph that begins in First Peter chapter 5, verse 5. And in this chapter, one of the things that, that Peter emphasizes here, and in the first four verses, he's talking about leaders of the church and humility. So he goes on to not only describe humility for the elders, that is the leaders in the church, the pastors of the church, but how this should also be evident in the lives of younger people, not just those who are the uh, the elders within the congregation, those who are more mature. So he says, likewise, in the same manner, you younger people submit yourselves to your elders. So their submission to authority is part of humility. Humility at its very core is, is recognizing authority and doing a job whether you uh, like it, enjoy it or not, and doing it well. Jesus humbled himself to the Father by being obedient and going to the cross. So humility is evident by orientation to authority and being obedient. So uh, Peter says, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. And then he quotes from the Old Testament. He says, for God resists the proud... God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so he is emphasizing that God is antagonistic to the arrogant. He's antagonistic to those who are arrogant or proud, who are independent, who are rebellious. As Satan was, was rebellious. So he says uh, God resists the proud, but he gives grace. He supplies strength freely without condition to those who are humble, those who are obedient to him. 
Then he gives a command in verse 6. He says, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Well, how do we humble ourselves? We know that we are to be obedient, but he says, humble yourselves. That's the command under the mighty hand of God. Then he gives the result that introduces the result clause that he may exalt you in due time. If you want to be exalted, the path is servant to be a servant to God. This is exactly what was displayed by Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. It's because he humbled himself by being obedient uh, to the point of the cross, to the point of death, that God eventually exalts him so that every uh, knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So the path to exaltation is being a humble servant and being obedient uh, to authority, not challenging that authority and not being quietly uh, rebellious. So humble yourselves is the command, but the sentence continues. Verse 7 is actually a continuation of verse 6. The command is to humble yourselves and then... When we look at that first verb that's there, casting all your care upon him, we discover that this is an aorist active uh, participle. And in the, in the Greek, the grammar indicates that this is an adverbial participle, and it's a participle of means. It answers the question, how do we humble ourselves? By casting our care upon him by not trying to take control of the traumas and difficulties and challenges of our life, but by putting them upon the Lord. We humble ourselves by casting our cares, our challenges, the difficulties, adversities, heartaches, whatever is going on upon uh, uh, in our lives upon him, Why? And then the last part of that says, because he cares for you. Now, on the right side of the chart, I have the two different words that are listed here for care. Casting all your care upon him, the first word is merimna, which indicates care, anxiety, worry, whatever it is that you're so anxious, uptight, and stressed out about. You cast that upon the Lord, that care upon him. Why? Because he cares. And this is the verb melee which means that something that is a concern, something that is care, any issue in life. Some people think, well, I don't want to bother God with my little problem because I, it, it, I shouldn't do that. Everything. Uh, God doesn't have a little asterisk here. Say, so cast all your cares, just the ones that you think are serious. He says, all your care upon him. Every issue in life. And, and by ca- learning to cast the what we think are the non-consequential cares upon him, we develop the training to cast the big things upon him so that this we train ourselves to where this is the instantaneous response that as soon as we get hit with a difficulty, a problem, then we go through that process of claiming promises. And sometimes uh, we go back and forth and we're, we're putting it, giving it to the Lord and taking it back, giving it to the Lord and taking it back. And that's part of the process. That's how we're learning to do it. Finally, we just say, okay, I'm tired of it. I'm going to just put it on you. And that's how we learn and how we go through that particular particular growth process. Now, as we look at all of these different promises that we've been looking at, whether it's the uh, Psalm 55, uh, 20, 27 passage or the First Peter 5, 7 passage, what undergirds this is an understanding of who God is understanding his sovereignty. One of the things that struck me years and years ago as I read through the Psalms, uh, probably for the first time reading through all of the Psalms, is it, it struck me that 
again and again and again, as David is facing problems, the way he handles it is he starts talking about who God is. That once we start realizing who God is, we understand his sovereignty. We understand that he is in control uh, of the universe, that the, the history is the outworking of God's plan, even though things seem chaotic to us. We know that, that God is sovereign and he's in control and that, that things are not out of control ultimately. They only appear that way to us. We can think through his righteousness so that his plan for me is a righteous plan. It is a plan that conforms to his integrity. He's not out to hurt me or destroy me. He's not bringing these things into my life because he's, he just is, is an evil God and he hates me. Well, I often hear about people who say, oh, why did this happen? God must hate me. No, God doesn't hate you. He is a righteous God. And if you are a child of God, God is going to perhaps discipline you. And he's going to bring uh, some things into your life to force you to trust him. But he is righteous. He's just. Therefore, because he is the uh, judge of all the universe, he will do what is right. This is what what Abraham says in Genesis chapter 7, how shall not the judge of all the earth do right? He will always do the right thing. He, he's loving. He loves us, and he wants the very best for us. He's eternal so that he's he, – not only is – and you've got to have to connect his eternality with his omniscience, omnipotence, and omnipresence because this means that, that God is fully knowledgeable of every situation, every circumstance in our life, and he has been forever and ever. He's eternal, eternally omniscient so that billions and billions and billions and billions of years ago, he was just as aware of your problem that scares you and frightens you and surprises you now uh, as you are today. He knew this billions of years ago, and he made a, a provision for it. He's omnipresent, so he's right there with us as we're going through that difficulty, and he's all-powerful. That means he's more powerful than whatever the problem is. And so when we face problems, God promises that he's either going to going to save us through it as we go through that, or he is going to uh, save, save us uh, by delivering us from it, either in this life or by taking us from this life. Of course, sometimes we worry about the fact that if we're in certain circumstances that he's going to take deliver us from it in this life, but it's going to be extremely painful, and that, that pain could last for some time. But God gives us grace to handle even those circumstances. So... And then God is veracity. He's absolute truth. He, we can rely upon his word. He never lies. And he's immutable. He doesn't change. So he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we go to this essence of God rationale in terms of understanding what God has provided for us. Now, another great set of promises for us in the area of, of um, having peace or stability in the midst of crisis is in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6, uh, 5 through 7. It starts off with a command. Just turn there in your Bibles, just back a few books from First um, Peter, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. And Philippians is a great book focusing on joy. It's a very positive book from that perspective. And as as Paul gets to the end here, he has some some personal uh, exhortations, and out of that grows this particular set of promises. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Then it should paragraph change. 
Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Now, what we have here is a basic promise. The context tells us that he's he's been addressing a particular personnel problem in the local church there at Philippi. There are some people who have gotten um, upset with one another, uh, two women, uh, Euvodia and uh, Suntiki, and he says that they are to have be the same mind. They're to quit arguing, fighting, bickering, causing all these problems uh, between themselves. And then he says, I urge you also, true companion, so this is someone personal that's mentioned uh, as a, probably the leader of the church there, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also. So these are mature women who've been involved in uh, ministry in the local church. He says, and, and they, they worked with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And then he says, rejoice in the Lord always. So he brings us back to a mental attitude focusing on joy, that, that immutable joy that the Lord Jesus Christ has given us. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And then he says, let your gentleness be known to all, all uh, men. The Lord is near. And the peace of God, and he says, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So as we look at this, we have uh, both uh, two different arguments here that are presented, two different rationales. There's an essence of God rationale where he's talking about the fact that God is able to handle your anxiety, whatever it is that you are worried about. And it also goes into what's called the plan of God uh, rationale that's embedded here is that God has a plan and purpose for your life and that we need to align ourselves to that and then God will provide for us and protect us. So those are there. Now, as we've talked about, as we've talked about, um, fear in the past, fear come, fear is related to arrogance. Arrogance is the basic orientation of the sin nature. It's basic orientation of your sin nature, my sin nature. I have a friend in the congregation who frequently says, well, if I can't think of any sin that I've committed, I just confess arrogance because I know I've committed that a lot. Uh, this is the core, and it works in tandem with fear. We become self-absorbed, but at the very core of our soul, we know that we can't handle it. And that's that results in fear. So we have these two sins that work in tandem at the very core core of our of our soul and this is the danger point now we have these arrogant skills and they work cyclically and interdependently i think it starts with with self-absorption we focus on ourselves. We think we are the center of the universe. We think we can solve the problems that we really understand and know truth because we're pretty smart. And it doesn't matter whether you have an IQ of 50 or an IQ of 150. 
You think that you can do it. That's just the orientation of our sin nature. It doesn't have to do with how smart we are, because if we were really smart, we would always be humble under the hand of God. We would not be disobedient. So we start with self-absorbed. The more self-absorbed we are, the more we indulge our cravings. Now, we develop these skills, and we have all become sophisticated, A-plus, excellent students of arrogant skills before we were two years old. You had this mastered, so you never have to think about it consciously again. Uh, we we cr- crave indulgence. We give in to ourselves all the time. We give in to our sin nature. It's just the path of least resistance. Of course, from the time you were born until the time you were saved, you had no other option. So what you were doing during that period of time, whether it was four years, five years, six years, 16 years, 26 years, 36 years, you were perfecting your arrogant skills. Now, even after you're saved, you still continue to do that unless you are uh, completely and totally spiritually mature and none of us quite reach that goal. So it takes time. So even if you're saved like I was when I was six or you're saved later when you're 16, you still go through a lot of time after that when you're struggling with your sin nature and it gets the best of you and you just continue to perfect it. So we become self-indulgent. And then when we indulge ourselves, things usually go wrong. And then we have to justify it. Well, I just had to do that because I really didn't have a choice. I just had to do that. And we come up with all kinds of reasons for why we were right. And the more we repeat those to ourselves, the more entrenched we become in our own righteousness. And now we become self-deceived. We can't see the truth anymore. We can't look at ourselves objectively anymore because we're totally self-deceived. And then we become the ultimate uh, arbiter of truth and reality in our lives, and that's self-deification. So those are the arrogant skills and how they work together. And the more the more we deify ourselves, the more absorbed we become, the more indulgent we become, the more ju- self-justification we have, the more self-deception, and it just spirals uh, out of control completely. So this is a result of arrogance. Now, just a couple of points about arrogance. Arrogance is the orientation of the mind or thought that puts man as the ultimate reference point in the universe. We put yourself as the ultimate reference point in the universe, and that means that we become uh, the source of what it means to be happy. We define happiness. We define security. We define success and stability rather than God. So it immediately puts us in a situation where we are opposed to God. This is why God makes war against the arrogant. Second thing, so the first one is arrogance is an orientation of mind that puts the man at the center of the universe. Second point is that arrogance replaces the creator with the creature. We start, if we're not worshiping a thing, if we're not worshiping an idol, then we're worshiping some sort of value from our own soul. Ultimately, what determines that is us. We determine what that ultimate reality is. And so we become, as it were, a substitute God. And we take God's place. So we replace the creator with the creature. This is Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and following. The whole rest of the chapter is all about what happens when we worship the creature rather than the creator. Third point, arrogance thinks that man's way is better than God's way. But the proverb says there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. 
So in arrogance, we think man has a way that's better than God's way, but it's self-destructive. So we could add something to the arrogant skills as a consequence to all of this selfism. We add the consequence of this is self-destruction. Fourth, arrogance is the core mental attitude of the sin nature. That is the focal point of the sin nature. So when you're born, that, that's just, as I love to say, that is that little smiley, happy, beautiful little face is just a sin nature wrapped up in the flesh. And we know what Paul says about the dangers of the flesh. So you got to look at your babies as just little sinners. And it's your job as a parent to teach them how to control that, teach them self-control, teaching them good manners, teaching them obedience, teaching them uh, orientation to authority. All of that prepares them ultimately for when you can give them and communicate to them the gospel, and then they have been prepared through all of your, your training and discipline as a parent to respond to that. So that's the fifth point. Arrogance is the orientation of every person from birth, Every, and it's the orientation of every unbeliever, no matter how nice and sweet they might be, and every believer out of fellowship. And when you're looking at another believer, you have no idea whether they're in fellowship or out of fellowship. You can't look at another believer and say, well, I can tell you're walking by the Spirit. They can't even tell that. They, they might have more of a clue than you do, but they can't tell. A- absolutely. So we have to recognize that when people are operating on the sin nature, they can easily be easily become very manipulative and very dangerous and just terrible, terrible people. So we always have to recognize that arrogance is the orientation of every unbeliever, and that is always their modus operandi. Sixth point is that arrogance is the orientation of all human viewpoint. It's all about making something out of man. All human viewpoint philosophies, rationalism, empiricism, uh, postmodernism, modernism, uh, whatever it might be, all is oriented to, to developing man as the ultimate reference point in the universe. Uh, so sixth point, or, arrogance is the orientation of all human viewpoints. Seventh point is that arrogance was the sin of Lucifer in the five I wills that are expressed in Isaiah 14, 13, and 14. He culminated that by saying, I will be God. That, that personifies in his action what arrogance leads to, self-deification. And then eighth, the last point, arrogance is the idea that the creature knows more than the creator and can sit in judgment on the creator and his revelation. This is what Eve did in the garden. When the serpent said, did God really say that, that you can't touch, eat or touch from the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil? And uh, is that I mean, is the implication? Is that really good? And what he's done by casting the question that way is causing Eve to follow his mental track and evaluate God's command. And once we put ourselves in a position where we're evaluating the Word of God in terms of whether it's true or not, we're, we're, we, we can begin that slippery slope of arrogance. So what happens when we are arrogant is that we give in to fear. We give in to fear. Now, in, back to Philippians chapter 4, uh, verse 5. 
the command that Paul is giving is to straighten out this problem of this personal antagonism between Yevodia and Suntiki. And so he says, let your gentleness be known to all men. And that is uh, a key thing that we are to uh, focus on uh, gentleness. This is a product of the uh, God, the Holy Spirit, in terms of the fruit of the Spirit. And it means to be reasonable, to be fair, to be kind, to treat another person on the basis of the justice of God and out of humility. So it's related to grace orientation and uh, authority orientation toward God, but that can only be built on a foundation of biblical truth in the soul, wisdom in the soul, and then we're able to uh, then treat somebody in this manner. So as we look at... There we go. At verse 5, we read, let your gentleness be known to men. Then we get the motivational point, the Lord is near. The Lord is near. He's close by. He can, his coming is near. So this is a motivation. Are we going to be uh, ready and prepared when the Lord returns? It emphasizes the imminence of the Lord's return. But death is also imminent for every one of us. We do not know how much longer we have on this earth. We could live till this afternoon, tomorrow morning. We could live for another 30 or 40 years. We can't assume that. So what Paul is emphasizing here is that we need to be right with the Lord in terms of our actions, in terms of what we do, so that we are always prepared to meet the Lord. Then in that context, he says, it goes into a specific point, to be anxious for nothing. To, uh, not to worry about anything. So this is related to that word for care, First Peter 5, 7, casting all your care uh, upon him. That was a noun form of this word, which relates to anxieties or worries. Uh, now, there's a level of anxiety or worry. For example, uh, if, you're going to, if, you're, if you're an actor and you are going on the stage, there's a level at which you you have a a certain amount of nervousness, and this sort of gives you an edge. You're not taking the situation for granted. And so it's it's we're not talking about that kind of a situation. You're going to give a presentation at work, or you've got a situation at work, and you're concerned about it, so you keep thinking it through in your mind. That may or may not fall into the category of worry, depending on how well you're trusting God. We have to think through issues a lot. We have to face through them. We use the term that we're worrying it. And, and what we're doing is we're just thinking through, thinking it through again and again and again to reach solutions of what we need to do. But we can do that by, within the framework of casting it upon God, or we can do it where we're, where we're just, where, where our whole motivation is out of fear and anxiety. Uh, maybe we'll lose our job. Maybe some other catastrophe will happen, whatever. And we're not, uh, doing it within the context of, of trusting God. That's what this is talking about is when we're motivated by fear, we're out of fellowship and we're worried to death. Everything's out of control. What are we going to do? And it spiral, can spiral out of control. So we're told to be anxious for nothing. That's an all-inclusive word. There's nothing left out. Everything is there. There's no category of life that you're not supposed to be anxious, that you're supposed to uh, not apply this to. So you're, whether you're worried about your kids, 
whether you're worried about your parents, whether you're worried about your retirement, whether you're worried about your savings, whether you're worried about getting a job, you're worried about that test tomorrow, whatever it is, uh, we're to cast that care upon the Lord. We're to be anxious for nothing, not one thing, but in everything. See, you go from nothing to everything. These are all inclusive terms. By prayer and supplication, just two synonyms related to bringing something before the throne of grace and giving it to the Lord. So it's explaining how do we cast our care upon him. We put everything by prayer and supplication to him along with thanksgiving. We are thankful for facing the problem because of how God is going to use it to bring us to spiritual uh, spiritual maturity. So... Uh, be anxious for nothing and everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. Articulate this. God's omniscient, of course, he knows about it. But God wants us to bring this before him, and it gives us that opportunity to to trust in him and to articulate the situation, the problem, and the solution. And the result is then given in verse 7, and the peace of God. This is contentment, tranquility, calm, we're relaxed, it comes from God. This is not just uh, something that is the result of pulling ourselves up by our own emotional bootstraps. God gives us this, this calm, the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension. It goes behind the, the, the what seems reasonable or rational for the situation or circumstances, and this isn't a decision-making tool. It's not like, well, I couldn't decide whether to do this or to do that, so I prayed about it, and God gave me a peace. This is not a decision-making concept. That's just mysticism, and that's not relevant. This is that, that God protects us. We're protected by this peace. It's part of a problem-solving device. It is the ultimate problem-solving device that God's peace, which is the result of casting our care upon him, bringing prayer and supplication before him, then we have this calm, this tranquility that protects our soul as long as we stay in fellowship from giving in to fear and worry and and anxiety. It guards, it protects, uh, it fortifies our hearts and our minds. That's two terms used together indicating our soul, who we are. Uh, through Christ Jesus, this is a divine protection. This isn't just some some uh, uh, motivational technique, some mental technique that that anybody can utilize. And then it goes on to tell us what we should be thinking about in verse nine, the um, or verse eight. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure. Whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue, if there's any pra- anything praiseworthy, meditate, that's a New King James word, on these things. It should be think on these things, reason upon these things. The word is logizomai, which is the same word that is used or related to the word that is used for the imputation of sin, or reckon yourselves dead to sin, count it all joy. That's all logizomai. It's an accounting term stressing objectivity and rational thought. This isn't emotion. So once again, it reinforces the, the, the truth of Scripture that the spiritual life is a life of thought and reflection and logic, and it is not emotional. It has nothing to do with your emotions. Those are just consequences of right thinking. But most people want to spend all their time thinking about the emotion and trying to generate those emotions rather than thinking about 
uh, about the Scripture. So we're going to stop here, and the next time we'll come back, look at some other promises, and continue our study on the faith rest drill. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things. In this class, we pray that you will help us to cast our care upon you, remind us that God the Holy Spirit will store these principles in our soul, and that we will be encouraged and strengthened to focus more and more upon you as the solution rather than upon our problems. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.